Welcome to episode 6 of The Tomorrow Farm, a podcast by Bayer that explores what's possible for society based on what's possible in agriculture. I'm Bonnie Lee and in this episode, we'll unpack the very idea of nutrition, what it really means, why it's always changing, who benefits from good nutrition and how agriculture can help expand access for all. As a mum, this is an issue close to home. Worrying about what my kids eat, if my kids will eat, is a predictable challenge for any parent. Their tastes, however, are anything but. My name is Jill Castle, and I am a registered dietitian, and I specialize in pediatric nutrition. I've always loved food. I'm not really a great cook. I can cook, but I love the science of food. And I've always loved kids. I have four of my own. I love working with children. They really tell you what they think and feel. They really do. I told Jill that my own children are painfully, almost cruelly honest. I wondered, why is that? Could we delve into that whole kind of psyche and background of a child and how they see food? Why is it so hard to get my boy to eat an avocado, which for me tastes great, but to him it's like the devil's food? (laughs) You know, where did that come from? Everybody is born with a genetic blueprint and we have a genetic blueprint also for our taste preferences. We know that in addition to that, children have more taste buds than adults do. And those taste buds are more sensitive, particularly to the flavors of bitter and salt and sweet. Avocados might be the battle at my house, but I knew other parents were struggling to get their kids to eat different kind of greens. I asked Jill... Why vegetables in particular get such a bad rap? Children have more taste buds. The density of taste buds on their tongue is greater than that of adults. And so they are going to experience flavor more intensively. In vegetables and in some fruits, there is a chemical called PROP, P-R-O-P. What vegetables are really high in PROP? Broccoli, (laughs) the typical green vegetables. The green, yep, yep. Prop is the bitter chemical in foods. And some children are very sensitive to that chemical, meaning that they find it repulsive. It's really offensive to them. Those kids are generally referred to as super tasters. About 25% of the population are considered super tasters. So if you think about children, they have a tongue with more taste buds. So they're tasting everything. Bitter, umami, sweet, salty, fat. They're tasting all of those flavors more intensively than adults are. Yeah, so I'm getting kind of an understanding now that actually there's lots of elements why children eat the way they eat. It's to do with the environment, to do with the flavors that they're used to, and also how they're genetically predisposed. I wondered if there is any hope for us parents at all. If kids are hardwired to dislike veggies, how can we convince them to eat them? We want to show vegetables in a lot of different forms from roasting them to bring out the sweetness to showcasing them with dips because kids love to dip to shredding them into quick breads and pancakes and muffins. With respect to Jill, I don't have time to be sneaking vegetables into things I bake from scratch. Dips I can do, but better yet, is there a way to outsource this seemingly Herculean task? Can someone else make sure my kids are getting their greens? 
Here in the UK, the lunches kids eat during the school day are typically provided by the parents. In the US, I came to understand, it's a whole different world. Meet Tara De Clemente, the woman whose job is to figure out how to repackage and reinvent veggies so that picky schoolchildren will eat them. 350,000 picky schoolchildren, to be exact. I'm Tara Di Clemente. I'm the manager of health promotion at Chicago Public Schools. So I'm here in lovely Chicago. And this is for the whole of Chicago or all of the schools within the city? Yeah, so this is all of Chicago Public Schools. We have 642 schools and about 350,000 students. As manager of health promotion, it's not only Tara's job to make sure the children in her district have access to nutritious foods, which is challenging enough. It's also her job to make sure they have access to food, period. So I've been with the district for eight years. It started with me thinking, I'm going to make these the healthiest, best menus ever. But then you realize healthy means a lot of different things. So as much as we offer a lot of fresh and healthy varieties of food, they're still kids. So we still have pizza, chicken nuggets, cheeseburgers, all the things children love. But then what we really focus on is what are the sides we could offer there to offer different flavor profiles or just, of course, introduce fresh fruits and vegetables. So it's really a layering when we build a menu, starting with that core where we know student favorites, these are going to be on the menu, and then what local items are available. I thought back to my own childhood and my own school lunches. I assured Tara that there was no way this much planning went into what I ate on a weekly basis. I had to know, what are kids eating these days? We actually were just featured in um, Food Service Magazine Some people dream of being a model on a front page of a magazine. We dream of being in school food service magazine for a menu. (laughs) One of our chefs, Beverly Kim, she made a beef bulgogi and a cucumber kimchi, which was amazing. We have lentil sloppy joes. So when you think about something fun, sloppy joes, but now we have lentils, so it's plant-based. We've served that on our meatless Monday. We did a tofu lo mein this year with a bunch of fresh veggies cut up and cooked in there, which was so good. We've done lentil tacos, bean tacos, but we really up the game with the toppings. So we're constantly keeping up with food trends as well. So I never want to discount that students are foodies. They are foodies. They want to know where everything's from, what's in it, what's it taste like. They're going to tell you how it could be better. (laughs) They're going to tell you if they liked it. They're going to tell you never serve it again or serve it this way. We are constantly changing. I mean, the conversation we're having now, I'm just so amazed at how much innovation there is in what you do. Because, you know, you mentioned beef bulgogi. I mean, I didn't have a bulgogi until I was 35. It certainly wasn't introduced to me at school. I was beginning to understand that a huge part of good nutrition is basic access and exposure. I asked Tara how, with such a complex and varied menu, she manages to source all the ingredients. It's a really important lesson for our students around farm to school. Our students, many of them, born and raised in Chicago, families in Chicago, so they're not often venturing out to where you even see a farmland. So really thinking about making that connection so that they can think about this bigger food system and that when you ask a student, where did this carrot come from? It's not from the grocery store, which is true, but where did it come before that? We're just trying to focus on the areas we know we can make headway because there are some things 
we're in the Midwest. We're never going to be 100% local. We define local as within 350 miles of Chicago. Food just doesn't grow here that we need. We're not going to get citrus. We're not going to get pineapple. There's just things students love that are not going to come from the Midwest. So we know to push on what we can. We know we can get corn and peas and potatoes and chicken and milk. So we focus on that and just trying to do what we can there. Tara told me that she relies on a combination of local farmer relationships and larger scale commercial vendors to get all the produce she needs. Frankly, I was impressed that she goes so seemingly out of her way. And I wondered, in an urban centre like Chicago, is it even possible to go 100% local? The guest we'll talk to next has done it. Carlin Greenstein is a private chef and devout locavore who has her own creative methods of sourcing fresh fruits and veggies in another even more sprawling metropolis, New York City. My name is Carlin Greenstein. I live in New York City and I've worked as a chef for almost 20 years. I was living in San Francisco when I first started out my career and then I moved to New York to do my master's in food studies and nutrition at NYU. Something that always excites me is the hyper, hyper local. To be clear, Carlin does not live in the suburbs. There is no bridge, there is no tunnel. She's in the thick of the most popular city in America. So how does she manage it? How does she eat so fresh and local in a concrete jungle? Does she farm one of those cool urban gardens? We belong to a CSA, my family, and CSA means Community Supported Agriculture. And what it means is we've basically joined a farm for a six-month period, the height of their growing season. So it's from May until November. So what it does also then for the farmer is it allows him or her, the family, to buy seeds in advance. It allows them to not have to put all their energy towards going to the farmer's market or soliciting restaurants. So they have this amount of money and resource. Almost like a pre-order. Yes. It also gives them the security because if they have a week's or week's worth of rain or an early frost and suddenly their production is less, we're buying into the fact that we will take whatever is offered on a weekly basis, even if it's smaller than maybe the week before or the week after. And then for the consumer, we have the most incredibly fresh produce that we could ever imagine. I mean, the beets that still have the dirt on them, which is exciting to me living in a city in a high rise that I'm like, oh, good, I want to wash the dirt off. Let me try and work out how this CSA works. So you don't go to work on the farm? No. Or help them out in any kind of manual way? You just pay them up front for produce that's going to come into season? Yes. But you don't know what you're getting? For me, I feel like it's just a reminder of what's growing and the inconsistencies that come from weather or maybe a farmhand, he's one farmhand down and he doesn't have as many people to help pick the greens that week or whatever it is. It's that you're supporting a system that oftentimes gets neglected. Coming up with whatever dinner her CSA delivery allows is actually a pretty familiar process for Carlin. She's something of an expert at improvisational cooking. Before moving to New York, Carlin spent a summer at a slow food kitchen in Italy, cooking for hundreds of people using whatever was handy. I was cooking in Rome, cooking for 100 people just with the vegetables that were arriving from the farmer on any given day. And so what happened there is that it was a slow food kitchen. 
which means that all of the traditional foodways, the traditional methods of preparation were rooted in Roman traditions. All of the food was sourced within, I think it was 200 kilometers of the academy in Rome. And so unlike a normal restaurant where you have an inventory list and you place orders once a day or multiple times a week, we were literally delivered whatever the farmer was growing on that given day or that given week. We weren't just plating one thing. We were required on each meal, or at least for lunches, to have a family-style meal and have six different options, always a soup and then three vegetables and one protein. And so how we would do that was just off the cuff. And I'd never cooked like that in a scale. And my first day, I made risotto for 100 people. And so that was something that was very eye-opening for me to have that experience of cooking in scale. I told Carlin about Tara in Chicago, who plans seasonal menus for the entire Chicago public school system. It's quite a dynamic thing, isn't it, when you take it into a much larger scale. I know you mentioned your daughter. How old is she? She's seven. So instead of one daughter, say you had 50 daughters and they all had different taste buds. I mean, I commend her because I'm sure she has her work cut out for her trying to bring fresh foods into especially school systems. Definitely, it's way easier to be like, this is what we're eating for the week. This is the menu. I think that's why restaurants oftentimes don't change their menus even seasonally. We're not even talking about the limitations on a budget level. For me, that's so mind-blowing of how to... It's it's something that I'm very curious to hear... Suddenly, I realized I'd been so caught up in where Tara purchases all her produce, I didn't even think about how she does it. Carlin had made an excellent point. Access to healthy, nutritious food is about more than proximity. It's also about cost. I had to talk to Tara again. So, Tara, there's this, again, there's this impression that high-quality food has to be expensive. Could you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, is it true? I personally, of course, find healthy eating to be affordable because I've made it my mission to shop at several different stores. Not everybody has time to do this. There's really this companion education needed with that mentality of cooking and budgeting and even how to grocery shop. Yes, it's important to learn about fiber and vitamins and minerals and all of that, but you also want to have children understand the food system and that it's a really big part of our environment. It's a really big part of how healthy or unhealthy our environment is and vice versa. Farming is also very impacted by healthy or unhealthy our environment is. The focus of my book is actually on the global food system. I'm Dr. Uma Lele, and I'm president-elect of the International Association of Agriculture and Economists. Okay, so a quick aside. Dr. Lele isn't just the president of the International Association of Agricultural Economists. Oh, how mouthful. She's also the first woman to earn a PhD in agricultural economics at Cornell, a former senior advisor at World Bank and an advisor to former President Carter. As I got more and more interested in how different people get access to nutritious food, I wanted to talk to someone who could demystify how food is distributed around the world. If we can just get a sense of what the system is like in different parts of the world. Yeah, I think you can look at this from the point of view of dependence on world trade, for instance, that I was talking about in a global food context. 
So if you look at the major continents in the world, then the U.S. produces 90% of its own food and imports only 10%. And Canada next door produces only 75% of its food and imports 25%. So Central America, for instance, produces only 80% of its food and import 20%. And they are all small countries. So if things happen in the world markets, that affects them much more because they are small. And is eating locally and seasonally part of the conversation? Or is that not sustainable at scale? Actually, one of the good things that has happened as a result of trade and globalization and growth of supermarkets is that now you can eat all kinds of foods that you couldn't in winter, for instance, here. I remember as a graduate student, I used to eat iceberg lettuce and I was bored to tears of eating iceberg lettuce. Because it tastes of nothing, right? It doesn't taste of anything. Exactly. But now I don't have to because I can eat spinach and other things which are much more interesting throughout the year. So I think processing of vegetables and fruit has also improved their durability and reduced spoilage and made foods that were not available outside the season available to consumers, which is a good thing. So I want to make sure that in my talk, I also recognize the advantages of globalization because that makes foods available to people to which they didn't have access before. So the question is how to increase the good side of globalization and how to control the downside. The downside Dr. Lele mentions is that access is a two-edged sword A free-flowing global food system doesn't only expand the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables, it also makes it easier to get stuff that's not as good for us. I review the history of nutrition and our understanding of it. I think the what economists are calling the dietary transition, which is moving from cheap calories to more expensive calories as incomes increase. But not all of them are good calories for the body. In the 1970s, the primary concern was about calorie deficit because people were hungry and what was the best way to create more supply of food. What we are seeing now is what is called at least a double deficit. On the one hand, too many calories and of the wrong kind. So... What is happening, and in my book I outline this, that the consumption of fats and sugar, etc. has increased a lot as income has increased. And also there are many other forms of dynamism taking place, which is that women are working outside as they did not before. And so they have less time to prepare food at home. And canned food and processed food is much more easily available. And the cost is much lower now in terms of per capita income compared to the 1970s, for instance. Pizza, for instance. Among young people in the developing world, pizza and hot dogs and hamburgers have become a way to show that they have become westernized. They have become modern. So... I don't know whether we can put the genie back in the bottle, but I think it's going to require a lot of information. I was beginning to realize that good nutrition is more complicated than I'd bargained for. 
So much goes into getting produce to our tables, whether it's from the local farmer's market or from across the globe. But that's not the end of the story. Once we have healthy food available to us, we have to actually choose to eat it over something else. I remembered something Jill said. Fruit is fruit. Vegetables are vegetables. We need them for the nutrients. So how you decide to put them in your diet, whether you're going to your local farmer's market, whether you're buying canned versions in the grocery store, 10 for 10, it doesn't matter. So we've gotten from farm to plate. Now how do we get from plate to belly? There is a competition. We can only eat that much. So you have all the packaged food or starch and all the comfort food. My name is Martin Rubelt and I'm the head of Global Consumer R&D in the Vegetable R&D organization. Martin works for Bayer Crop Science, researching why we like the things we do and what we might like in the future. So when you say research and development, for me, I'm thinking, what is there to research when it comes to vegetables and fruit? Aren't they perfect the way they are already? You're absolutely right. Vegetables have been grown and selected for over 10,000 years. But you can see when you look at the evolution of vegetables, they have changed, constantly changed and adapted. Our environment is changing. Right now, we have challenges with banana and with cacao and coffee, where there are diseases that put a lot of pressure on the production. And if the industry is not finding resistance genes and varieties to those diseases, there will be a drop in availability of those produce and therefore also a very high price increase going forward. I came to understand, talking to Martin, that there is a lot to consider when breeding a new fruit or vegetable variety. The farmer needs a good harvest and a resilient crop, but the consumer has their own demands when it comes to taste, appearance and even smell. How do you strike the balance? We have to be careful that we don't jump on every trend and we have to understand what is the underlying desire of a trend. So we do consumer preference studies worldwide in the entire world and we try to understand what the consumer wants. We want to understand, can we model it? Can we understand, can we predict the preference? We developed analytical essays for all the sensations, for sweetness, bitterness, for acidity, for different textures, crunchy, juiciness. Everything. Now we can go and analyze a tomato and predict whether the consumer in the Netherlands or in Germany or in America would like it. Tomato, tomato. Isn't it just a different way of saying or eating the same thing? Martin says you'd be surprised. There are clear differences. So we see, for example, in the Netherlands, they like the tomato sweet. For example, the snacking tomato. The Germans like them sweet too, but they also like a little bit of acidity in the taste. And it could be even more obvious when you look in the Asian, in Japan, Korea or China, they like pink tomatoes. We have not even heard about pink tomatoes, but here in the United States or in Europe, but that's what they like. They are looking for pink tomatoes and they are a little bit softer. Is it easier to produce something tastier or more nutritious? Or is that the most silly question you've ever heard? Because it just means completely different things. I think it's a very, very good question because it shows us the complexity of the two different aspects. I think it's easier to breed to increase nutritional value because that's something you can easily measure. Taste is more complicated. There are so many different attributes that play together and they have to be in harmony. It's like when you listen to a symphony, 
all the tones have to be in balance. If there is one person who plays the same instrument but too loud, the whole music piece is ruined. And so taste or flavor includes aroma is very difficult to breed for. So are you trying to make these vegetables and fruits even healthier in your work or more nutritionally dense, I should say? There's a big movement of making fruits and vegetables more nutritionally dense. And I think that you can spend a lot of research money to, for example, improve the vitamin C content in tomato by, let's say, 10%. But on the other side, you can also perhaps improve the taste of the tomato or put it in a snacking size, making it more fun to eat and more mobile that you can take it anywhere to eat it, more colorful that kids are more attracted to it. And suddenly maybe you eat two tomatoes instead of one tomato and you already doubled the nutritional intake of all the nutrients the tomato can offer, not just the vitamin C. We monitor all of this, especially lycopene. Lycopene is a color and Everybody knows if the tomato is more red, it looks better. The consumer is more attracted. So definitely we breed for higher lycopene levels. So overall, the fruits and vegetables become nutritional more dense. But I think the biggest impact we can have for the health of the consumer is by making to entice the consumer to eat more fruits and vegetables. And I think that goes with making fruits and vegetables more delicious, more convenient and more fun. I also wanted to emphasize it's a balancing act. Tomatoes is very interesting. You can dial up the flavor of tomatoes, but then you reduce yield. So there has to be a balance for the grower and the consumer benefit. Then there's a whole other dimension to account for, transit and transportability. We hear a lot about farm to table without giving a lot of thought to the two, the logistics of how something gets from one place to another. It turns out the genetics of a plant can actually make a difference, helping reduce food waste, even packaging. We also read for, we call it, that the fruit stays longer fresh in the field. That gives the farmer more leeway when to harvest the crop in the field. We have all the melons that have a ripening indicator. So the farmer can just by looking at the color knows, okay, this one is ripe, I can harvest it. What about transportability, the firmness, the shelf life is very important. The other example where we try to reduce waste is we have snacking tomato varieties that are actually on the vine. And because they are on the vine, normally you have to package them because they go off the vine and then they follow around. But these varieties, they stick on the vine. So you could actually sell them loose on the vine and all the packaging is saved. So that's a huge, huge reduction in paper and plastic waste. I wondered how Martin managed to keep up with all this change in tastes and trends, in sustainability expectations, in the demands of the market. What keeps him going, I asked, when every time you solve one thing, something else needs solving. We have a pepper, it's called Just Sweet. and. It's so funny because I use a picture when I give presentations with my daughter because people say kids don't like vegetables. I think it's a myth. It's not true. Kids don't like bad tasting vegetables, but they love vegetables. When I come home from the research farm and have tomatoes or peppers and give this to my kids, they indulge in them like these are M&Ms. They really love it. I really loved when you mentioned your daughter eating the vegetables like it's M&M's. Would there, in your mind, ever be a time in history where children 
would treat vegetables like they are sweets. Yes. You do. I have no doubt that that will happen. That we will have an opportunity to improve the flavor, that we have an opportunity to make them fun with different colors. It becomes just very normal that they have in their lunchbox in school have their tomato. Then the slogan will be, a tomato day keeps a doctor away. I have no doubt that this will happen. I really believe it. You can find episodes one through five of The Tomorrow Farm wherever you find your podcasts. And if you want an even richer experience with more detail that couldn't be squeezed into this episode, go to www.bayercropscience.com. Thanks to Jill Castle, Tara Di Clemente, Carlin Greenstein and Drs. Uma Lele and Martin Rubelt for their time and expertise and especially their passion. To our audio crew, thank you for finding ways to make us sound polished and professional, even during a pandemic. And thank you to everyone at Bayer who made this possible and let us run wild. Beth, Danielle, Chris, and most especially Julia. This has been Vonnie Lee on The Tomorrow Farm.